it was possible to make so much stuff that there weren't enough people to buy it. And and actually, the Great Depression in the 1930s was, in a sense, it was a crisis of overproduction. We had people employed in all these factories very efficiently making all this stuff, and yet not enough demand for it. And so there was a sense of 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 the creation of of consumer demand and of course it wasn't forcing people into buying things but it was very strategically making it kind of necessary welcome to science for the people i'm rochelle saunders hi rochelle hi tim how's it going good Um, With me today is ecological economist Tim Jackson, director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity and professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey in the UK. He served as an advisor on sustainability to numerous commercial, government and intergovernmental organizations. Between 2004 and 2011, Tim was economics commissioner on the UK Sustainable Development Commission, where his work culminated in the publication of his controversial book, Prosperity Without Growth, Foundations for the Economy of Tomorrow, of which there has recently been a revised and rewritten edition released. Tim, once again, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. It's good to be here. First, can you maybe give us a quick uh, hit on what an ecological economist is? As I'm not certain those are two <laughs> words many people are used to hearing smashed together. No, they, they were. It's interesting. They were smashed together about, actually, it's the uh, 30th, boom, 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 30th anniversary of the smashing together of of the two words ecologically and 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 economist the the international society for ecological economics was founded back in 1989 around about that time end of the 1980s anyway and it was really a sort of recognition that economics just doesn't uh, really um pay much attention to the ecological circumstances of a finite planet um, doesn't pay much attention to resources, doesn't pay much attention to the impact on the environment. And ecological economics was born really out of um, a concern that mainstream economics has too little attention to to the, the world we live in and its limits. So ecological economists try to redress that, try to put something of the planet back into profit. And also, interestingly, they 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 also have a sort of social remit as well, so that that's quite a lot of of ecologically economists would say that alongside you know profit and planet, we somehow need people in there as well, and and we need uh, to take account of of social concerns. Can you also maybe give us a little bit of an abridged history of the book Prosperity Without Growth, um, how it came to be originally, as well as why you wanted to release uh, a substantial revision to it fairly recently? Yeah, uh, it, it was it was a very interesting um, set of conditions, really. So I was appointed as economics commissioner to the UK government um, on the Sustainable Development Commission in 2004, as you mentioned. And... Um, uh, the chair of that commission was was a man called Jonathan Porritt, who I had known for years. He was at one point director of Friends of the Earth. I used to do a lot of work with Friends of the Earth back in the day. And he and I kind of sat down on my first day as economics commissioner, and he said, Tim, what are you going to do? And um, I somewhat naively, I think, looking back on it, sort of said, well, 
and I had been working on this question of, of growth and economic growth and its impacts on the planet for a while. And I sort of said, well, you know, it, we had limits to growth back in 1972. That argument all sort of went away during the 1990s because we thought we could solve all the problems with technology. I wonder if it's time to revisit it and do a substantial piece of work around um, where that argument sits where that limits to growth argument sits now that we're in the sort of as we were in the early 2000s sitting there with if you like a sort of a view of the world which you could sort of call ecological modernism that with enough technology we could solve our environmental problems and keep growth going as as economists and politicians love it to do exponentially year on year um and it, it was um, it was immediately accepted. Jonathan just sort of said, yeah, and I think that would be great, and I think you're the right person to do it. And so really for the next few years, um, I was convening bits of evidence. I was um, organizing meetings. I was writing and commissioning background papers and, and getting to the point where um, – in 2009, uh, I was able to, to, to produce this, what was originally a, a report to the UK government on uh, prosperity without growth. And so it was very deliberately, and the title took a lot of uh, negotiation, as you might imagine, for a government commission. Um, but it was, it was a challenging title, and it was uh, uh, immediately clear from the, the title of the report and the content of the report that we were being critical of the very growth-based paradigm that the government and all governments around the world, to be fair, um, uh, adhere to and and see as being their, their rationale, their raison d'etre. So it was, a, it was a process of writing what was initially a government report that, um, and there's some interesting, I don't know how far you want to go into it, but there's some fascinating experiences through that in the sense that the, the government report more or less sunk without a trace in its first week of launching it. Um, I had some interviews set up which were cancelled and then um, there was very little um, to show for the fact that we'd spent so long writing this report and then launching it for the government. Um, and and then a very strange thing began, began to happen, which was although it had no publicity whatsoever, it began to be downloaded from our website at a rate of knots that we had, we'd had just not experienced with any of our previous reports. And it suddenly became this sort of almost cult underground report that um was a was a very long and very slow initially very slow but but later quite fast burn um in which it began to achieve a kind of coverage that we might that i certainly had never expected for it in in the first instance and certainly never expected after the initial sinking without a trace of the government report itself and then the the book, the first edition of the book came from that. The second edition of the book was, I think, because after almost 10 years from the original work, I began to realize that, you know, the arguments had changed. Um, the, 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 the importance of the arguments had grown even further. And my own perspective on the things had also changed a little bit. So I wanted to provide a, 
a really substantial revision that would that would situate the work and the thesis of prosperity without growth in the in 2017 rather than in 2007 which is kind of where it was incarnated so that was that was the process um i have to say that you know that conversation i had with jonathan back in 2004 in a cafe somewhere in london i i would never have expected um, the process to have kept me occupied, fully occupied, over-occupied for what is now 15 years and showing no signs of, of diminution whatsoever. So it's been an interesting journey. It's interesting how sometimes our life's work begins in a cafe conversation. A, ca- a casual conversation in a cafe, yeah. So uh, because there's these two words in particular in the title of this book that you said as well were designed as a critique and kind of chosen carefully and, and had to be negotiated for. There's two really key words, I think, in this title that we probably need to unpack before we go much farther. One is prosperity and the other one is growth. And probably also without, but I think we need to define growth and prosperity first. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I think it's the without that does most of the work there in terms of being the challenge. Mm. Uh, but, but the growth, so the growth, what we were talking about and very explicitly talking about is the, the growth in, in the gross domestic product, the GDP of the nation. And that's the primary indicator really of political and social and economic success is this one number, the gross domestic product, the GDP. And, um, that was also the target, of course, of uh, the the Club of Rome's work back in 1972 on the limits to growth. The the idea of growth, which emerged whole scale after the Second World War and became the defining myth of our generation over the next few decades, um, by the time I came to writing that work was virtually unquestioned anywhere, even environmental lobbyists really still adopted the language of growth of economic growth, because it was a way of engaging in a conversation with business and government that was felt to allow them a seat at the table to discuss the serious issues of the economy. So that was the that was the paradigm that that uh, was being challenged this idea that the economy itself can go on growing forever not just um <clears throat> not just growing in fact but growing ideally at an exponential rate um year after year after year and and it's a really it's a really odd sort of myth and it is in in a sense a myth because because you have to wonder how we ever fixated on something so uh actually so 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 flawed <laughs> so inaccurate as a measure of well-being and as a measure of plus prosperity um as the gdp and and actually the limitations of the gdp as a measure of social progress have been known since 1968 for example when robert kennedy in a very famous speech at kansas university argued that that, that you know it, it measures everything except that which makes le- life worthwhile and he and he listed all of these things that were left out of the measure of the gdp and and economists actually you know don't reject those arguments they accept those arguments about the limitations of the gdp and yet it still has this kind of uh, deep-seated 
mythical resonance in society for politicians and for economists um, that, that at the time that Prosperity Without Grace was written were virtually unchallenged. But the other word, and, and of course you're right to, to point to that, is, is, the, is the word prosperity or, or well-being. What is it that the economy is designed to deliver? It is designed to deliver the, the well-being of, of its citizens. And you can only go on doing that if you respect the planetary boundaries within which we live. And so the idea of separating those two things and saying actually prosperity Sorry, it's a really interesting thing, but it's not quite the same thing as economic growth. It's not the same thing as the economy. Society and our sense of our own well-being and our social progress is not just about getting bigger and bigger and more and more and busier and busier. Actually, it's about health and it's about family and it's about our community and it's about our sense of participation and, and fulfillment in life. It's all of these things that are actually in many cases immaterial rather than that material growth that the GDP tends to capture. And so that was what I was trying to do with the title and with the book itself, was kind of say, you know, the growth-based paradigm has led us down some blind alleys. It's created environmental destruction. It's not led to social equality. And it's missed its focus on on the well-being, the prosperity of human beings. And it's time to separate those two things. One of the interesting things I I found about reading this book, especially in the mindset of reading a book ostensibly about economics, was how much the book the book delved into culture um, and how a lot of the underlying problems and challenges we have with uh, climate change, with the limitations of the natural world, um, with using things like growth as the benchmark by which we um, we mark success or that we claim success is, is at its heart a real cultural problem. And there's a lot of logic you go through to talk through the arguments in the book. Um, and that's great, but a lot of it is really focusing in on the way our culture has kind of hyper focused in on this idea of growth and also in a particular way on how we prove that we are successful or how we kind of signal to the world that we are prosperous. And that I found really interesting and something I wasn't expected for a book about uh, economics to spend so much time thinking about and talking about and trying to understand how our culture got us here, but also how cultural changes can maybe help get us out. Yeah, I mean, you have to um, <clears throat> sort of understand, I suppose, that I am a something of a renegade economist. <laughs> Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't train in economics at university. Most of my economics I've learned on the hoof in professional circumstances. And, um, and, and I think that's, that's a part of it. So, I, so I came at these questions from a much more foundational perspective, I suppose, um, a more philosophical perspective on the one hand. And yes, with an interest in, the psychology and the sociology and and the cultural politics of of how we think about social progress so i was i was able to see <clears throat> in a way that a sort of fully paid up trained economist might not necessarily be able to see 
that the, the, the assumed logic that growing the economy makes everybody better off isn't necessarily the case. It isn't, it, it may be some, a point in history, it may very well be the case. And I think that's another a point to make and a point I tried to make in the book that in different points in, <clears throat> in the history of different cultures, economic growth as we've conceived it does make sense because in in some circumstances even today there are people who who don't have access to good nutrition don't have adequate housing don't have the medicines they need to stay healthy have no access to clean electricity or energy supplies can't even trust the water that they're drinking and in those circumstances actually a growth in the material phys physical conditions of their life and indeed a growth in their incomes can only be a really good thing. So it, it, it's, it was a part of what I was trying to do in a way was to sort of to give a cultural relativity to the idea of economic growth and to say there are points in history, in our own history, where growth was doing an extraordinary amount of work in terms of improving our prosperity and improving our well-being. And and it's it's tempting, it's always tempting in these debates to kind of pick a side and say, no, I'm really for growth or I'm really against growth. But the reality is, of course, that under different circumstances, growth has done different things it's achieved different things it's it's created enormous opportunities and it's 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 foolish in a way to simply say well therefore you know we, it, yes but it's created too much damage so growth is bad and we should just not talk about it at all actually the situation is much more nuanced than that and being able to acknowledge that there are points at which this cultural myth really worked i think was a was quite an important thing to do as the basis for our understanding of how to deal with a situation where now it isn't working it isn't working as a cultural myth it isn't working in environmental terms it's creating problems socially and we don't know how to get over that and and the point to me i suppose about the cultural depth of that discussion is we've arrived at a point where we need to understand things in social terms and in cultural terms, not just in economic terms and narrowly defined economic terms and technical terms. And that to me was a part of, part of that was my own kind of history as a non-economist. And part of it was my, was having worked for a good decade and a half on some of the technologies and the narrowly defined economics and realizing that you just can't answer the questions that are being asked of us as a society at this point just using technology or just using economics you have to look a little bit deeper which is exactly why the book does that one of the uh, ways in which you look a little bit deeper at something that seems like a, a straightforward statement like a, a critique about a, a consumerist culture, which we have now that really focuses in on uh, material goods. Um, it could be easy just to say we're too consumerist, we don't need all this stuff. Um, but what was really interesting is you talk about the culture of those material goods and the way that things aren't just things. We have a tendency and a, and a need right now because of, of the milieu we live in to imbue those 
things with symbolism, with meaning. We use them as a way to communicate things about ourselves to uh, other people in wider society. And I think that's a piece of this puzzle people often miss. Um, also things like gifts. We symbolically show our affection or our thanks or our love for somebody by giving them things. Um, and that to me, it was interesting to read about that while also thinking about that from a cultural and uh, ecological standpoint, which is something that I hadn't entirely connected before. Yeah, I, it was interesting. I had come at the point at which I began to work on Prosperity Without Grace. I'd just come from a, a research fellowship that I had been awarded here uh, for three years looking at the essentially at the sociology of of consumption and so i was exposed to a lot of literature that was absolutely fascinating really which explores our relationship to material things not just as functional things but as as you say as as a sort of symbolic resource to to communicate to provide ourselves and other people with indications of status and importance to talk about significance to talk about about uh fulfillment to talk about meaning and purpose in life and it, it's such a i mean it's a wonderful literature actually i think it's really it's really very rich and what was fascinating to me about that literature was that it was developed initially by um by advertisers by people who wanted to create symbolic connections between the things, the products that we were, we wanted to sell as much of as possible and the real intimate lives and aspirations of ordinary people. And so the, 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 the birth of advertising as a phenomenon was about the creation of these symbolic connections and all, a lot of the literature that I was looking at when I was on this fellowship had some connection at some point to consumer research or to advertising um, in understanding the richness of those symbolic connections. But when I say that it was the literature was created by advertising, I, I don't mean that the symbolic connections themselves were created by advertising because what was interesting about a part of that literature was how Almost all of the evidence that we have for almost every society that we know anything about whatsoever, that symbolic relationship between human beings and material artifacts can be found. So in the sacredness of the cow in a particular situation, in the, in the importance of gifts and gift giving, as you mentioned, in almost all early societies, in the relationship of people and religions to sacred objects and status objects, all of those things actually are embedded in our, in, in the relationship between human beings and material things. And of course, that was a very fertile ground for ad advertisement because it could allow you to to create symbolic links with all sorts of things that are entirely trivial in many cases, I mean, just junk that overflows into our lives, but is really important to have because the person next door has it or because you might miss it tomorrow or because it says something really important about who you are as a human being. And, and this this whole understanding of our symbolic relationship to material things was used in a way to create and sustain 
the consumer culture. And so it was a part of the problem, that literature, in many ways. And yet what it also held was a, this kind of grain of truth, this in-depth understanding that we are as much symbolic creatures as we are material and functional creatures and that this symbolism actually matters these cultural stories matter the way that we communicate matter and our relationship to material things also matters and so if you want to if you want to get beyond consumerism if you want to get beyond black friday and mass consumption if you want to get beyond a sort of uh, of of a, a loss of the human soul in a materialistic dystopia you have to be able to understand that relationship you have to be able to see it for what it is as a part of who we are as human beings one of the things i as part of this idea of um, material goods and consumerism that is definitely something I've noticed recently and that you do address in your book uh, to some extent is this idea of we need to keep buying things as part of this idea of a growth-focused economy. And part of that means we really have down-prioritized the repairability of goods or the longevity of goods. Um, even within my lifetime, I've noticed that things don't last as long as they used to or things can't be repaired uh, in a way. So a lot of stuff just you use for a year, maybe two years, maybe three years if you're lucky, and then they just get thrown away so that you can buy a completely new one. Yeah, I know it's it's so it's it's extraordinary really. And it was it was a created artifact. It was um you can sort of see the reasons why it happened because in the 1930s, and it seems a long time ago, but actually that, in a way that is the foundation for the kind of society that we now live in, when society had created all these wonderful technologies and had access to resources that it were undreamed of by previous generations, it was possible to make so much stuff that there weren't enough people to buy it. And, and actually the Great Depression in the 1930s was in a sense, it was a crisis of overproduction. We had people employed in all these factories very efficiently making all this stuff and yet not enough demand for it. And so there was a sense of, of, of the creation of, of consumer demand. And of course it wasn't forcing people into buying things, but it was very strategically making it kind of necessary, socially necessary or technically necessary uh, for them to replace as much of their um, material possessions as fast as possible just to keep this process going. And and a part of the rationale for that was actually how dreadful it was when we had a lot of people unemployed in the economy. So we, So it wasn't in itself, it wasn't even a um, – a sort of aim that we should demonize this idea of keeping people employed <clears throat> it's a, it's fundamental really to to human participation in society that you're doing something meaningful and we'd set up a lot of our employments around making all this stuff and therefore it was imperative that we had people who could go out and buy it and want to buy it or need to buy it and a part of that was a a sort of technological obsolescence of making things which were <clears throat> cheaper slightly less robust and would need to be replaced 
sooner rather than later. Some of that was even programmed into some of those products so that certain parts of them failed critically and you had to throw the whole thing away even though it was only a very small part that had failed. And so the design of obsolescence into products became a part of that strategy. And and the other part of it, I think, was a sort of a sense of social obsolescence, a sense of, of creating a culture of people who wanted and needed to be seen to be to have the latest technology, the latest device, the latest gadget, the best uh, holiday in the sun, the fastest automobile, the most well-presented house, and so on and so forth. So this sense, actually, that that appearance and and material appearance in particular had had a high social significance that was developed as a, a sort of form of social obsolescence. And it was part of that strategy to keep the system going, to keep growth going in um, in a situation where you could produce almost as much as you want as long as there were enough people to buy it for you. I also want to talk a bit about the idea and concept of decoupling, because I know that this often comes up in conversations when we talk about the way out of um, the ecological debt we're digging ourselves into that has a, at some point, a sharp drop off. Um, and the idea that uh, we are already on a good road to decoupling um, uh, what we do. So basically, this is the uh, idea, and let me know if I'm explaining this really poorly, um, decoupling the, the s- amount of stuff we have from the, or the stuff we have from the process of making it. So basically, so that we don't use up as much, we become more efficient as we make things or as that we provide services. I think I bungled that terribly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not so, that's not so far from, from the truth. So the, this decoupling, I mean, mostly what people talk about when they talk about decoupling is, is decoupling material and environmental impact from economic value so so the gdp as it's measured in the economy is a measure of the exchange of goods and services and it's measured in dollars uh, or currency but but uh, primarily in most of the conversations dollars will do and and um and dollars are not the same thing as tons of material or or tons of carbon and so if you can you know, produce your dollar output with less material input or with less carbon emissions, let's say less greenhouse gas emissions, then the hope is this decoupling of economic activity from its environmental impact will allow you to keep growing the economy, but to continually reduce your impact on the planet. So that's, that's really the idea of it. It's, it's, broadly a technological strategy it's a broadly a kind of faith that by being very clever and using better technologies and using the technologies more efficiently uh, we can get out of that growth-based trap that we can continue to grow the dollar value of our economy but we can continually reduce the impact that we're having on the planet 
And one of the things you talk about um, in a little bit more detail in the book is we think that we're doing an okay job, I think, broadly of decoupling in the Western world. But when we actually look at um, some of the modern studies and methodologies that measure things like our carbon and material footprint beyond our own territorial borders, we actually get a little bit of a different story being painted because some of the footprint that we have is kind of being hidden in other countries' footprints. So theirs is quite high and ours appears low until you realize that they're making a lot of stuff for us. Yeah, exactly. So so a lot of the dirty stuff now happens in in China and Asia and, and so on. And we import those goods um, without seeing the environmental impacts that arise from them. I mean, that that is one of the problems with the decoupling argument. The other is the um the the rate at which we have been able to decouple uh economic output for example from from carbon emissions and and it's when you look at the history of our ability to do that we did do some decoupling so we did reduce the intensity of our of our economic output in carbon terms over a period of a few decades but we didn't do it anything like fast enough to achieve the kinds of environmental goals that we are now beginning to realize we have to achieve within the next few decades so if you take something like carbon for example carbon dioxide which is implicated obviously in 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 climate change um, what you find is that the the best point in history at which we were reducing our carbon emissions was in the 1970s when we reduced our carbon emissions by around about 3% every year um, as, as a proportion of economic output. And that actually now at this point in time with the limits of, of the climate now becoming more obvious to us, we have to be reducing that carbon intensity at rates that are something like 20% every year. So six or seven times the fastest level of decarbonization that we ever achieved. And we only ever achieved that in the face of a, of a kind of oil crisis that almost crashed the economy. So there's a, there's a degree of what I would call sort of aspirational thinking around decoupling, I think, that that the economists think that the economy has something to do with efficiency and so we should prize efficiency and efficiency will give us these technological gains which will allow us to save money, increase our output and reduce our impact on the planet. But once you actually crunch the arithmetic of that, you find that we've done nothing like what we now need to achieve, anything like fast enough to achieve it in the timescales that we're now being presented with in relation to climate change. And and that's the point, I think, at which you have to sort of start to say, uh, you have to think a bit more seriously about this as a, as a system, as an economic system, as a social system, and not just rely on uh, sort of aspirational fantasies about efficiency. 
I do want to talk a little bit more about efficiency as well, because this is uh, another topic in your book that I found myself drawn to thinking about more deeply for the first time, because an efficient economy is such a, a like foundational core belief of capitalism that I think it it's almost unquestioned. It's certainly not something that I had ever really questioned very deeply. And um, one of the, the things you talk about is whether or not efficiency to some extent is actually something we we should be valuing as much as we are because um, it can get us into trouble as we efficiency people out of particular types of industries. Uh, this gets into areas of automation, but also how some industries and some types of work which should be highly valued aren't really subject to the same kinds of efficiencies that others are. Things like service work in hospitals, education, that work really requires people and time. And it's not something where you can create vast efficiencies, which to some extent, our current kind of capitalist economy really depends on. Yeah, no, I think that that to me, you know, is a part of a thought process that I that I got led to when I began to think about the dynamic of this growth-based economy and the way that it continually chases efficiency and particularly chases what what's called labor productivity, the efficiency with which we use people's time. And, and the idea of that labor productivity, the growth in labor productivity is, is, is to do things continually to create more and more output with less and less time for people. And yet there are some kinds of activities and, and the ones that you were talking about are exactly the kinds that the activities in the care sector, in craft, in, in creativity and, and the arts where actually it is precisely the time that people spend in those activities that gives them their value and 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 when you try to drive those activities by efficiency based measures you actually create a sort of uh, dystopian versions of those activities where you know doctors are continually uh, being pushed to see more and more patients every hour but no one patient gets any time with their doctor anymore and and nurses are running faster and faster around the nurse round but you never see the same nurse twice because of the way that that's being organized or you're asking teachers to teach such enormous class sizes that there's no more room for one-on-one -on -one contact and tutorial time or you're asking you know the london philharmonic to play beethoven's fifth symphony faster and faster each year um, because time is money um, and it, it's really interesting actually that last example was one that was brought up by an economist called William Bomol back in the 1960s where he pointed out that artistic activities in particular have this very strange characteristic that, that they you can't just pursue labor productivity growth in the same way that you can through manufacturing and therefore, they will occupy a, a rather difficult position in the economy because the costs of musicians' time will rise in relative terms as the economy grows, um, and 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 you you won't be you won't you'll find it difficult to pay for those kinds of activities. So that they must either be increasingly subsidised by the state, or they will go out of business. Or we have to find some other way of, of managing for activities like healthcare, like social care, like craftsmanship, where you, you want 
people to spend their time and energy and resources to make beautiful, long-lasting objects, these things will begin to disappear in a labor productivity-based economy. And that's kind of what we've seen. We've seen the squeezing of an arts sector so that it's heavily reliant on, on subsidies and advertising revenues from unsavory places. We've seen the difficulties of state funding the health sector. And we've seen things like crafts uh, finding it much more difficult to compete in markets which are dominated by mass production. So all of these things. And, and the interesting thing about all of these sectors, care, craft, creativity, is that they are inherently non-material sectors. To go back to our discussion about decoupling, they could be an enormous source of decoupling the material impact from the economic output. But they are prejudiced by having this peculiar characteristic that it's our time as human beings that creates the value of them as a service to society. And that's the point where you realize actually that this, you know, simple allegiance to the concept of efficiency in capitalism is just misguided. It's a misrepresentation of what prosperity is. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to touch briefly on your thoughts about the role of government in trying to help us or help us help ourselves move away from um, what seemed to be a poor culture or a, a idea of communism that's really starting to drive us into a danger area ecologically. Um, I know that's a hugely broad topic and we've not got a lot of time left, but I, I would love for you to give some of your thoughts on what is the role of government from your perspective here? Because I think that's a place where even if we agree that there's a problem, we get a real sticking point um, from the standpoint of, okay, well, what do we do? Yeah, I, you know, it is, a, it is very definitely a tricky issue. And of course, it's a highly politicized issue. There's you know, there's no doubt about that. We, and we live at the moment in a particularly over-politicized phase of that discussion about the politics of the state, where it's actually becoming increasingly, almost increasingly divided between a kind of far-right position that sees uh, the state as a kind of enemy to individual freedom and a... a, a a left-wing position which recognizes, and I think I would stand with this recognition, recognizes that the state is there for a purpose. The idea of the social contract is to say that there are circumstances under which um, individual allowing for individual freedoms has to be curtailed for the benefit of society as a whole. And we always, we always recognize that there are some of those conditions. So, for example, when it comes to issues such as murder or the damage to human beings, aggrieved, um, aggravated injury, that, that is something where you curtail personal freedoms if necessary with the legislative structure of the state because it is damaging to society. And so there, so I, I, I would, I would rescue that idea of the social contract. I think, I think the difficulty for government is that they, partly the difficulty has been this polarization between very left wing ideas of, of the state of 
controlling our lives in as many ways as possible. And on the other hand, the right wing idea of, of the state as being an enemy to freedom, that actually that misses this, this middle ground where actually the state should be regarded as providing the foundation for a social contract. It has to be the point at which we start in order to create the right institutions, for example, the right finance that would finance and invest in the things we want for the future. It has to create the conditions under which businesses operate. It even, and we're finding this at the moment, it even can create the social norms around decency and, and truth-telling and respect for others, which which are part of the social glue of society. And when the state forgets its function in that role or is no longer able to play its 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 function in its role in that function, th then the conditions of society generally begin to to fall apart. And and you know, I, it's a fear, obviously, in the present circumstances that we are actually looking at some of that happening. And then it's difficult to sort of see exactly how to move away from it. But the one thing I would say, I think, is this: is to return to this very simple, basic philosophical argument that in the common good it's necessary for, for us all to give up some freedoms in exchange for the quality of the society that we live in and and for me that remains uh, a rationale for for thinking of of the state as being an important part of of creating a genuine and lasting prosperity it's one of these definite things that I wrestle with because I know that government is such a huge component of leading on cultural change and it has so much power and that power can be used for really good purposes. Um, but with the wrong people in government, it can also be used for very negative consequences. Um, and so it's one of those things because governments are effectively people, uh, a sort of smaller subset of people making decisions, um, pointing in yeah, certain it's, directions. It's, it's a challenge. Right. It is right. It's a challenge. And, and it's about the conditions under which that process of asking a small set of people to represent a big set of people how that process works and i think one of the one of the one of the issues for me and i was very i was very struck by this in in 2000 in the mid 2000s when i was writing this document is that we at that point we sat in a relatively progressive government in the uk which was continually trying to do things to make things better. So we had the Sure Start program, which offered uh, good nursery care for the youngest uh, children in in society and and the poorest children in society alike. And it and and the we had a world leading piece of legislation in the UK Climate Change Act, which was passed in. 2007 2008 so we had a very progressive government making doing all the right things and yet at the same time that same government had already been captured its downfall was already in the system 
because one of the first acts that the Labour administration had taken on in a decade before that, in 1997, was to liberalise the financial institutions, to put them at a distance from government control and to give them free reign to create what emerged as the havoc of the financial crisis. So this, this idea that governments are in some sense conflicted they they do and can have very progressive aims and can achieve extraordinary social progress in quite a short period of time but if the conditions under which they are doing that uh lead to the kind of financial uh instability and social inequality that that was created through the financial crisis, then they cannot work properly. And and one of the things, and it was a you know it was the hardest message in a way for government to talk about. But one of the the messages really from prosperity without growth was was to say that for as long as the government itself sees itself as simply, or not simply, but primarily chasing economic output, measured by this faulty indicator of the GDP, then they are inevitably going to be making the wrong decisions about financial stability, about business regulation, about social norms in society, because for all their progressive aims, they're still trying to push this measure of the GDP as the single biggest indicator of success. And so they, they end up in this, inevitably end up in this conflicted state where what happens in the chaos pushes us towards these political extremes that we've seen over the last few years. And, and I suppose my, my one plea through that is not, is not to give up on that idea of the social construct, but actually to, articulate the conditions under which it can it itself can thrive and amongst those conditions i think we have to let go of the idea that the aim of the social contract is to expand economic output that might be the means to achieve certain ends but it cannot be the role of the social contract in itself tim thank you so much it's a really interesting book and uh thank you so much for joining me today it's been a pleasure thank you Phil. If you want to learn more about Tim Jackson, his work, or his book, Prosperity Without Growth, Foundations for the Economy of Tomorrow, head on over to our website, scienceforthepeople.ca, and into the show notes for this episode, where you'll find links to follow to learn more. Last week, we gave you a list of cool science objects, books and otherwise, that would make great gifts for the nerds in your life. But as you've heard today, we should all perhaps consider closely the physical stuff we buy and the culture we have around gift giving. Perhaps we can tell the people in our lives how much we care about them without giving them an object. Maybe think about taking them for a nice meal or to a live event. Spend a day out in your community at your local science center or museum. Volunteer at a school or with an after-school program together. We should think about all the different ways we can say I care rather than with just stuff. Also consider giving the gift of science with a science news subscription. I want to shout out to all the science news organizations out there who work hard to keep all us nerds up to date on the latest and greatest science news. It takes great journalists, editors, and fact checkers a lot of time to create the content on places like Scientific American, Hakai, Undark, National Geographic, Discover, Science News, Wired, Popular Science, Ars Technica, Motherboard, and NPR. Most of us, 
Well, we generally consume this content for free. These hardworking folks are often our teachers, helping us understand more quickly what may have taken them days to wrap their heads around. So if you spend a lot of time perusing any one of these sites or other great science news platforms, consider finding some space in your 2019 personal or gift-giving budget to support some of them financially as well. Sign up for a subscription. In a lot of cases, you'll get extra content, which is great. But mostly, a subscription does for them the same thing our patrons and PayPal supporters do for us. It helps keep the lights on. It pays for the time of hardworking, brilliant people to pay careful attention to details and translate complex science into language a layperson can understand and get excited about. It's hard work, and if we believe science is valuable for everyone to understand, we should be willing to invest in it and the people who bring it to us. So this year, consider supporting a science news site. There are so many, and it's impossible for most of us to subscribe to all of them, but we can each pick one our favorite, one at random, that one that seems to be struggling, and support them. It does make a difference. We also know there are lots of ways to tell science stories, and we don't want to pick just one type of media. There's news and history and narrative, and it all works to help us learn more about the science we love. If you, like us, spend a lot of your science time with science podcasts like Gastropod, Flash Forward, Sawbones, NPR Shortwave, and The Story Collider, as well as Brains On and Tumble for Kids, then also remember there are ways to support the people who create that science content as well, via Patreon or PayPal or other network subscriptions. Consider who you trust to bring science into your eyes and ears, and find out if you can help keep them afloat as well. In addition to the fine people working the science media beat, we'd also like to offer an assortment of science-related charities that will happily take your money. While we haven't exhaustively researched these organizations, we do think they deserve a mention for their fine work. We also recommend you check them out before donating. You'll be able to find the full list with links to their websites in our show notes at scienceforthepeople.ca. The Union of Concerned Scientists is an alliance of over 400,000 citizens and scientists who believe facts, not ideology, should drive policy decisions. They put rigorous, independent science to work to solve our planet's most pressing problems and combine technical analysis with advocacy to create innovation, practical solutions for a healthy, safe, and sustainable future. They're on the front lines trying to prevent major cuts to governmental departments focusing on public and environmental health. There's also Evidence for Democracy, which advocates for the transparent use of science and evidence in public policy and government decision-making in Canada. It's easy for Canadian science news to get lost in the noise, especially these days with Canadian news media organizations folding left and right. And Evidence for Democracy is a great way to keep abreast of what's going on north of the 49th. In the UK, there's Sense About Science, which works in partnership with scientific bodies, research publishers, policymakers, the public, and the media to change public discussions about science. Their award-winning public campaigns share the tools of scientific thinking and scrutiny, and their international Voice of Young Science network engages hundreds of early career researchers in public debates about research and evidence. If you'd like to help promote science awareness and understanding, you can give to the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The AAAS is an international non-profit organization dedicated to advancing science around the world. 
They work to foster education and increase public engagement in science and technology for everyone, and to strengthen and diversify the science and technology workforce. Helping to encourage interest and expand opportunities for women in science is an issue that's close to our show's collective heart. In the U.S., the Association for Women in Science and the Anita Borg Institute for Women in Technology promote and encourage women and girls in science, engineering, and technology. Take a look at the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. They funnel 100% of the donations they receive into research grants, and since 1987, they've awarded more than $400 million to well-deserving neuroscience research in areas such as addiction, depression, autism, eating disorders, PTSD, and more. Engineers Without Borders is an international coalition of dozens of national member groups that make use of their diverse technical expertise to solve critical problems affecting the health of our planet. And of course, there's also Doctors Without Borders, an international humanitarian organization providing independent, impartial assistance around the world to victims of natural disasters or armed conflict. They provide care on the basis of need and advocate for improved medical treatments and protocols. If we missed your favorite science charity, post a link and description in the comments on this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. All the charities and news organizations and podcasts I've mentioned will be there in the show notes ready for your clicks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting science and science news in whatever way you can. See you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Music